I'm the Black Panther. And I'm the Red Fanged Lion. Join us as we create alchemy in minutes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of Alchemy in Minutes. We are sitting here in Woodstock at the studio this morning, bright and early. For those that are listening from other places in the world, it's morning in Cape Town, South Africa. It's about half past eight in the morning. And this morning, I'm sitting with Chantal Opalt, and we will be talking about, I think, the first time we realized that we are powerful. Chantal, tell me about the first time that you realized you were something big. Morning, Rissal. Morning, everybody. Um, I think I've always known that, um, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a language for it. And, um, there's certain telltale signs when you are powerful. Um, and the telltale signs will always be who are you constantly fighting with. And so for me, one of the first telltale signs was that I was constantly fighting with my dad. Um, and my dad... He's the the eldest um, boy in his family, um, and his father wasn't present in in their home, and so he became the man in the home. And the stories that he told us, you know, we we uh, were four children, four siblings. And my eldest brother, Denzel, passed away when he was 35 years old. Um, and then I was the second eldest, and then my sister, Leanne, and then my brother, Radford. And the stories that my father would tell us would be of him as an 11-year-old boy and how he would ride his bicycle um, from wherever they stayed into um, the dockyards, the waterfront, what we call the waterfront now, but it, would, it was the dockyards then. And he would go and look for food for his family. And um, the story that he keeps on telling us was about, you know, he used to be a butcher there. And at some point he had a connection with the butchery, so this young boy, and they would throw chickens over the wall so that he could catch the chickens on the other side of the wall and take it home to his family. So my father is a survivor. He's a a man that is um, highly skillful, streetwise, provided for his family, and hard inside. And that that exterior, you know, that, like an exoskeleton, like a crab would have an exoskeleton, a, um, a snake would have an exoskeleton. The exterior was very hard to penetrate. And so as a young child, I, I would always have something to say and I would always 
um, challenge in a particular way and in ways where my father didn't appreciate that. Um, so I'm not sure how it is in other cultures. My sense is it would possibly be the same. My father held the, you know, the patriarch and <clears throat> and what would happen is that everybody um, respected him. No one um, spoke up against him. No one stood up against him. So here's the, his eldest daughter, the short ass, that is questioning in a particular way. So there's telltale signs, and those are one of them. It got me into a lot of trouble. Um, I think the only way my father knew how to contain that was to beat. And so he would hit us. Um, and he would either hit us with, uh, you know, the leather strap, the dog's leather strap, uh, or he would hit us with a hand. But there would be methods that he would use to keep me in check. So I'd say there we saw. Mm. I'd say that's... And at the time, as a young child, you don't interpret it like that, you know. Um, you're just asking innocent questions or you have a curious mind and you want to know. And there's nothing inside of a child that thinks there's something wrong with asking this question. Um, but when you, when you, um, when the response to that question is violence, um, it does something to the inner world of the child, which it did for me, definitely. How, you know, in episode seven, you were speaking about your dad and the conversation that he had with you. And, you know, he, after that conversation, we says, so my bookie, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and it led to, it led to a dismantling of your life. That my sense um, is that your your dad specifically would never understand where that took you. Can you can you speak to me a little bit about that? So I I also um, completely resonate with the daughter challenging the father and the father beating it out of you. You know the curiosity or the the challenge itself. Um, and so my father, he, I think he has an inkling of where that left me, but it would be like 10%, you know, a 10% inkling. Um, when you come from a Cape Malay, you know, Muslim colored background in Cape Town on the Cape Flats, and you, you, you can be very sheltered you know, because your parents are trying to keep the Islam inside of you, <laughs> okay? You're not going to a Muslim school. You're not in Saudi Arabia, right? So they are trying to create a world for you where even though you're living in a country where, you know, we don't have Islamic rules in the country, they're still trying to enforce an Islamic lifestyle, which means you must wear a scarf when you leave the house as a girl. You must pray five times a day with the family. You know, you 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 don't speak a certain way. You don't do certain things. Um, you don't expose your body. You know, don't wear sleeveless dresses if it's hot or short shorts. You know, um, 
And so you you become sheltered because even going into a restaurant, for example, you can only eat where it's halal, where they you know where it, where it's where the meat has been slaughtered in a certain way and been uh, blessed by a Muslim priest and imam. So you are limited in your environment already. And if your parents are like mine, who are very conventional um, and staunch, then already your, your environment is like reduced to 20%, you know, for you to roam and for you to understand the world. So what happened as a result of that is that I was sheltered in a particular way. I had certain things. Um, I had food on the table every night. I had clothing. Um, I was educated in a certain way. But when my father decided that the the, li- the line was, if I didn't uphold that, then I couldn't be part of the tribe anymore. I lost everything. So what did I lose? I lost the roof over my head. I lost any kind of support um, with regards to buying clothes, food, uh you know, or basically your survival, right? So your basics. Um, I also lost a community. So what happens is when a patriarch makes a decision like that, so my father's also the eldest boy, and then he's also the eldest boy on my mother's side. So he's now the next in line if the grandpas on both sides die, right? Um, and so he would speak to my mother's father because his father was dead at the time. And then if he agreed, then the message would then trickle down and say, Bissau's no, no longer part of the family. So I can't even access my the rest of the family because now the order is Bissau is out. So that means I didn't just lose my dad and my mom and my sisters. I lost my cousins everywhere, everyone, right? So if you see them in the mall, they would walk right past you type thing. Um, and yeah, it was difficult. I remember trying to figure out how I was going to make money, you know, like I'm running out of cash. And I was staying with friends at the time um, and I promised them because I had a lot of pride. You know, my father, that's like a symptom I got from my dad, you know. You don't ask for things. You don't ask, you make a plan. Even if you are like struggling, you know, you make a plan. You must never be in debt. And even if you are in debt, you must pay that debt quickly, you know, and no one must know about it. So I said to my friends, who were actually my sister's friends at the time, much older than me, um, I said to them, look, I'll stay here for three months. But after three months, I'm going to go. And they were like, girl, <laughs> you are a child. You can stay here until you are okay, you know? Like, And I was like, no, three months. And after three months, I left, you know? Um, and I was earning 1,500 rand at the time as a volunteer in a TV studio. Um, and the place I found to live, the rent was 750 rand for my room. So that left like very little money. And then I had to pay electricity and water and airtime and then my train ticket to work. So when I paid everything, I had 200 rand left every month to buy food. And this is not, this is not an easy conversation. Mm. And I don't think that we can sterilize things out, Mm. you know. So for the listeners, when you feel like you're going to puke or you're going to get sick 
or you know the podcasts are the energy in it is healing so you will be affected in a particular way when you listen to this episode and to understand that there's nothing wrong with you this is just what the trauma looks like and and you may not have possibly framed it like that um that there's trauma sitting in your body about this conversation um and there is and i don't think that we can have a conversation like this without speaking to the trauma because all of a sudden i'm saying i'm the second eldest daughter and i'm not i'm the eldest daughter i'm second in the family you know so your thoughts will get uh, muddled in a particular way and and the very piece that we're speaking about is when when you are sitting in a leadership position and something about your trauma gets activated these are the things that's going to happen you're going to feel sick you're going to start coughing there's going to be shit in your throat or you're going to feel like you know you're going to pass out so those things aren't separate too they are very present i think important also when you in a leadership position and you find your thoughts starting to spin and muddle and you all all of a sudden sitting in the room with teams and you don't know which daughter you are in your family a fact that is ingrained in you then you should take a second to just you know ground again um because there's something happening um and it doesn't mean you have to stop mm. it just means that you have to be present mm. to what's happening in your body mm. absolutely and so a big piece of what um what started happening for me when the facts um and it wasn't that the facts got muddled it came out in another way mm. you know um so when you have the facts straight in your head but what comes out of your mouth is something else that that also becomes um an important piece to to track for yourself it's like when people say that's not what i mean to say you know you know when you have that happening to you and you're going but that's not what it sounded like in my head and then somehow when it came out in my mouth something happened from my mouth something happened so there's a piece around the translation of the facts and and that's the part that the wounding does the wounding interferes with the translation so what you have in your head as a fact and you know it to be a fact the wounding translates it into a very different way so that when it comes out of your mouth you you thinking about like that's not what i want to say that's not what i meant that's not what the fact is so so the importance of understanding uh where the wounding sits and what the wounding is about and how that interferes with translation mm. do you also find that that happens for you so Mm. Um there are times when I have to give a keynote speech 
or have to sit on a panel and I've prepared and I find myself in the middle of a sentence stopping and changing course completely because I know that if I follow that course my thoughts are not going to translate in the correct way so those that are going to be listening to me are not going to be able to understand what I'm saying actually and so I have to completely just change course and go rogue you know Mm. about a particular subject Um, because in order for me to talk about it it has to come through me Mm. and maybe it's triggering something in me um, that I had not prepared for in that particular moment and so I have to be present to it but then also choose to navigate it in a particular way so that I don't risk the audience getting lost you know so it's not again not about stopping it's about understanding that you are speaking to an audience and you still have the responsibility of getting a message across, even through your wounding. You know, that's why you're sitting in a leadership position. That's why you are the leader, that you have the capability and you take on the responsibility of of navigating anyway through the rough water, you know, through the storm. Um, it's an essential piece, I think, in... In leadership. Mm. And that's the part that I'm seeing when, you know, at the beginning your question was, when did you know that you were powerful? That That's the, the, that's the distinction with leaders. You get leaders that are very transactional and then you get others that create impact and create aspiration for others. And they, they lead in a very different way. And the important part that you're speaking about is those that are, you know, those that can touch people through their leadership. Those are people that have integrated their power. They allow whatever they need to say to run through their physical system. They don't keep it separate to themselves. So you don't you don't divorce yourself from this concept of power, you actually allow the power to integrate your system and you talk from that place. Mm. And everyone that's listening, you'll know the distinction between those the, those people where you just, you walk into a room and you feel this person there. You feel their presence. You feel their power. That's when someone is has taken this concept, this energy of power and run it through everything, every experience of who they are. They don't separate that out. They integrate that energy into every part of who they are. And so that's the piece that we that we speaking about today. We're speaking about when your power is integrated, integral into who you are and how everybody feels that when you walk into a room. There's something that you said now around um, when that person steps into the space. There is something we need to unpack around insecurity so you can get a powerful person like coming back to my dad he's extremely powerful when he's in the room everyone knows oh okay this is the this is the oh you must ask if we're ready to eat you know um even people that don't know he's the daddy you know they'll be like oh we're ready to eat and they'll look at him you know um but the difference is around that integration is the security so are you secure in managing that power, you know? And insecurity will look like, you know, leaking. So if you're in a really bad mood, 
Now you step into the room. People can feel that you're in a really bad mood. Are you able to shift? So because at the mercy of people are at the mercy of your mood. And if you don't know that about yourself, if you don't know that you are the when you step into the room, people are at the mercy of your mood because you are the one that people are magnetized towards, then that comes off as insecurity. And people never say that. People don't look at big shots and go, wow, you're insecure. But how you can tell if they are is how they allow that power to then leak when it's in a negative sense, you know. Um, And I think being daughters to fathers who are extremely powerful, who have survived the unspeakable, who were alive and growing in the time of war, of apartheid in South Africa, where dreams were just pulled out of from underneath them. You know, earlier on I was talking about my my uh, safety net that was yanked out from under me. In the same sense, our parents were, they, their safety was yanked out from under them. Um, and they were not allowed to dream. So, you know, living through that trauma and then still being the most powerful person in the room, are you able to be merciful to those that are present? and be able to put what you are feeling inside in a particular way that doesn't allow that to make others ill or make others feel less worthy. So I didn't say put it aside because what you're feeling as a leader is valid and it will always be valid. It's to put it in a particular, wrap it in a particular way so that while you are navigating it, you are not hurting others, which is unfortunately the what comes with the territory of being a leader is that you have others around you all the time and others that are looking to you for what is supposed to be happening. And as a, as a daughter, I was the youngest daughter. <laughs> so I was the youngest daughter and I looked up to my dad you know, I looked up to him, literally, he was a giant, you know, I looked up, you know, I grew up looking up at him, I still have to look up at him physically, you know, um, and everything he did, I tracked, and everything he did that felt wrong in my body, I also tracked, and so the challenging wasn't from my body, wasn't coming from, I hate you, it was coming from, I want to understand you, why are you doing it like this? Why are we doing it like that? You know, because that was, I was molding myself around his cookie cutter. And he saw that as I was challenging our way of life. I was challenging his spirituality. I was challenging our religion. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have the duties of a girl. Or, you know, he saw it as me being disrespectful. Whereas I was trying to build respect for the world. I was trying to build the courage to take on more, you know. Um, And I love that we're having this conversation because these are things that you can't speak to fathers about, you know. Um, You have to navigate it so carefully, you know. You have to sit, when you sit with them, you have to be so aware of their prickliness and their sensitivities and their insecurities. And so it takes a while to get to their heart 
you spoke about that exoskeleton, right? You it's like you have to take a what do the surgeons use a scalpel, mm. and you have to be mm. so delicate and try to get to their heart. And sometimes you don't get there. You know, you you cut a nerve by mistake, mm. then they end up bleeding out, and then that's the day. You call it. You go home. You didn't get the you didn't get the gold. You know. And there's some days when you just about pinch it, touch it, barely, and you get maybe a drop of what you came for. You know, and that must be enough. So it's an exhausting exercise. And some days I ask myself why I still do it, you know. Um, but I think sometimes I want to test. I want to test where I am. Where I am with my own exoskeleton. And I think I want to test also where I am with my own, with my molding. How much of it is still his and how much of it is mine. How do you um, navigate the relationship with men, older men? in your life now do they do you still sort of think of your father in a particular way or that fathering love um where do you get that from whilst you were speaking there was there was two things that came up for me the one was uh the position of rank and the power of impact and when when i think of my dad he has rank so the same way that you speak about your dad, he has rank. And that gets misunderstood, you know. Um, it gets misunderstood in a particular way. And and my sense is that there will be a misunderstanding for them too. Because my father, um, when he's at any social event, he's the life of the party. Everyone laughs at he's dancing and, you know, he, he, so so there's a sense of, in he, my sense is in his head, he has a particular level of magnetism and he, he can work the room in a particular way. But it comes from a place of rank, you know, so people are scared of him. He doesn't have real connected relationships, which my feeling is that that's the one thing that he yearns for. He wants to have deep, connected relationships. Um, and I completely agree with you You're in when you were speaking about your positioning with your dad, you know. You're tracking his every move. I did exactly the same thing. But it wasn't from a place of I want to challenge like this. It's more I want to understand. Let me understand what's going on because I want to connect with you. Um and that also, I think, got lost in translation. When you have rank, it gets read differently. Um, so when I come into contact with older men, you know, so specifically in South Africa, the gender, gender is skewed in relation to a corporate rank, corporate position, or, you know, those kinds of things. So when I sit with CEOs, Nine out of ten times, this is a, this is a, a a male, and this is an older male, and the I have to go into prep before I sit with that individual. It's like my niece's, my second niece's twenty first birthday next week, and uh, next week Wednesday, she knows that she has to give me a heads up because I need to prepare. My father's going to be there, so this is not I can I can't go into that conversation cold. I haven't spoken to my dad for two years, you know, so I need time to prepare to be able to have, just to sit in that space. And what I'm very clear about is I will be there because this is 
about my niece. It's her 21st, it's not about me. So when I sit with a CEO and the conversations that I have to have with myself is, how do we bring your people closer to you? How do we bring your people into this room? Because you are requiring impact with them. You don't know how to get that. The only thing you have is rank. And so what my lived experience has done is that it's allowed me to not deny my brilliance. It's allowed me to understand that skill that I have because it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a fundamental clinical skill. It's like when you're calling in the top cardiologist from somewhere else in the world and this person flies in, their hands are surgically um, sanitized, they walk in, everybody is waiting and you're just going in to create this operation. You just come here to do this thing. You want to, you want to get through the exoskeleton without blood or without um, death. Right? So that's a very particular skill that I have. And so when I sit with, with an older man, I have to know exactly what my protocol is going to be. What is my, as a metaphor, what is my medical protocol that I'm going to deploy that's going to allow us to get through and get out unscathed? Um, yeah, and so I have a way of, of um, organizing my thoughts. I have a way of organizing my emotions. I have a way of setting my trauma aside and I can go into the purpose and the impact of what my role is. What am I there to do? Um, and, and then in addition to that, I believe in miracles. So I carry that in my back pocket. I pray for a miracle. And not only pray for a miracle, I expect a miracle to happen. That's my, that's my measuring system for myself, that I have to go there in order to perform and create the impact that I'm called to do. And so I don't go in alone. I go in with everything that is greater than me and everything that supports the work that I do. Um, And I go in knowing that there are people, there are people waiting for me to come out on the other side. So, you know, like your sister's friends that you were staying with when they were saying, stay here. What did it take for you to say, I have to go? I couldn't allow my emotional body to be at peace for too long there. You know, I knew that if I was going to stay longer than three months, I would unravel in a particular way. And I needed to keep going. I needed to keep moving, you know, even if I'd only have <laughs> 200, <laughs> 200 and, you know, and, and not have the privilege of their fridge stocked with food, you know, so that 200 became mine and not have to now buy food and cigarettes and... I needed to know that I could move, 
that I, my legs, even though I'd felt like the rug was pulled out from under me, I wasn't cut off at the knees. You know, I still had my legs. I could still make something of myself. I needed to know that I could survive, you know. And I knew that if I had to stay longer, my survival instinct would become blunt. I would start to expect things like the fridge to always be full or my bedding to be changed on once a week or, you know, the privileges that these angels who rescued me were able to provide for me for a particular time. Um, and also the feeling of being understood. You know, so they they were all gay men um, and they got me. You know, they got it. They understood the wounding completely, you know, um, from from the inside, you know. Um, they they understood it. And so I also I also knew that it wasn't finished, the misunderstanding that I was experiencing. Um, and I needed to walk through that fire. I needed to further that path was longer than where I'd landed, you know. There was still the professional world. There was still lovers to meet and experience and navigate. And there was so much to still see. And I was in a safety bubble that uh, would, would actually be to my detriment if I had stayed longer. Um, and I think there was also wounding around feeling like a burden and feeling like uh, dependent right, on people. So I had to cut all of those cords very quickly. Um, and I did it I did it to see what I would be on the other side. It wasn't pretty on the other side. <laughs> the grass was not greener. Mm. There was no grass, mm. actually. Mm. There wasn't even sand. Mm. It was uh, concrete. Mm. But... I wouldn't change it mm. if I had to go back, you know, because every piece along that concrete road, I can look back now and I can f I can see where those pieces allow me to relate to people now, you know. So I can relate to people in a way where my family, we come from the same place, but they can't, they choose to not relate to certain people of walks of life because they don't understand where they come from, you know, whereas I understand. I understand when you're a student and you're living on, you know, in a house with other students far away from home and you're trying to pay your rent and you're working and you're trying to make it on your own and, you know, I understand those students, then they're not entitled, you know. They are trying to make it and I understand the homeless guy who sleeps outside your house, who you have to clothe, you know, and I understand the crackheads, and I understand the druggies and I understand, I understand because those were my friends and we were on the same level. None of us had shit to our name. We we were all trying to make it, you know. Um, I understand what it's like to build a community from scratch. I understand what it's like to Google on at the internet cafe. You only have five rands, you only have, only have half an hour. And now you must Google uh, jobs Cape Town. And then call every single person with your 30 rand airtime and, and make sure that you by the end of that half an hour you have at least an interview or the address 
so that you can take a taxi there and then knock on the door until they give you a job. I understand that. And also, if you don't find a job, that you're not going to eat. So these are the life skills that I've had to cultivate. And I would have never experienced those things if I had left my family's nest in a different way. My life trajectory and my skill set would be completely different today because I was sheltered and I was I was protected from the world. And that's not something my parents did intentionally to cut our nose off to spite our face. They did it because they wanted us to have certain values and certain privileges um, so that we could thrive in the community that they came from. However, when you know that you're powerful, you know that you can't just serve the community you come from. You have to serve everyone. And so the world needs to be bigger than where you came from. And uh, that was my initiation. Mm. And so the relationship with my father is tricky because he was at my initiation, mm. started mm. with him. Mm. Mm. He was my greatest teacher. He is still my greatest mm. teacher. Mm. Teacher, not, you know, he's not aware of that. But every time I meet him and I'm with him, I understand that, fuck, man. <laughs> you know, my uh, skills lie at your feet, you know. So it's a lot. It's a lot to forgive. It's a lot to understand and just like you I have to prepare you know I have to prepare to see him I have to prepare to speak to him I have to get myself together and there's some days where I tap eh? there's some days where I tap where I'm like hey I'm not gonna make it I'm not in the mind frame of getting to that forgiveness you know I'm not in the mind frame of seeing this man not as my dad but as a man who is deeply traumatized and who did his best with his capacity, you know, I'm not there. I can't zoom out far enough today to see him in relation to my power and what I've achieved, despite the abuse, despite the neglect, despite the rejection, despite it. I'm not there, you know, I'm too far in. Um, and I think that's also important for the listeners to understand is that there are days when you must tap. There are days when you must actually just say not today. You know, because then you are at the risk of leaking. You are at the risk of leaking. And and the risk is not, it's not worth it. Chantal, I wanted to ask you, um, you have a son. I do. And when you watch him grow, what are some of the things you reflect about? Because now you're witnessing this young man coming into his own in a patriarchal society, and you are nurturing him, you know, coming from your background. And so what are some of the, let's say, some of the values and uh, life lessons that you are, is, is it is it revitalizing? Or does is it triggering at times? Like, how does it work, you know, as a mom to a son, but a mom like you? It's such a beautiful question, you know. Um, and, and I want to take it back to this rites of passage that you're speaking about, this initiation. 
I am married to an initiated man, which my family, you know, when I met him, I wanted to run in the opposite direction because it was one of those moments where I just knew. I looked at him like, oh, my God, this is my husband. (laughs) And I had made a decision that I'm not, well, number one, I'm too full of shit. Number two. I don't want to get married and who who am I going to marry and who's going to be able to handle me and blah, 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 blah. You know, those conversations. So when I was, um, I was 29 and I was engaged to a nice guy. <laughs> Yo, the nice a, guy. A powerful person can't be engaged to a nice guy. It's, it's, it, it's going to be a shit show. And the wedding was planned, the wedding dress was booked and paid for, the cake and, you know, colored people and food. Yay, don't, don't mess was with colored. Was the meat paid the, for? Everything oh, was paid shit. for. And I woke up one morning and I decided I'm going to call off the wedding. Um, and, I, and I toyed with that. I toyed with that because I thought, yo, something inside of me said, you're going to be dead in two years' time if you continue with us, if you go down this road. And I sat with that for a bit, and then I went to my mother, and I said, do I need to speak to you? And she said, yes. But she already knew, because when we were when we were going wedding dress shopping. Oh, here it comes. Here's the archive. My mother was shopping, and I was sitting on the, I was sitting on the chair. Your mother was? In shopping. the bridal shop. My mother was looking at the dresses. I'm sitting on the chair. And she's going, aren't you? So she knew. Sauna-less. Right? She was like, she's like, don't, don't you like this? Don't you like that? I'm like convincing you. Exactly. And I was having nothing of it. And I still, I still booked the dress. I still paid for the dress. I Ouch. couldn't at that point. I just couldn't. Because I knew the shit's going to eat the fan. And then I went to her and I said to her mom, I have to speak to you. And she said, yes. And I said, I can't go through with this wedding. And if there's one thing my mother gave me in that moment, she looked at me and she said, I want you to be happy. Oh, that was the only permission I needed from my mother. I want you to be happy. And that gave me the courage to make the phone call. So at that point, I, you know, I then decided, right, I'm never going to get married. And this is who I am. I call off weddings and I, you know, (laughs) do all kinds of that. And then when I was 31, I saw my husband and I looked at him. And when I looked at him, everything inside of me knew this is going to be my husband. And and it wasn't like, oh, wow, that's him. It was like shit running the opposite direction. Were you terrified? I was terrified. Completely terrified. And then when I speak about he's an initiated man, he's a man that has walked his own fire. And he he lives every day wanting to be responsible with his impact. So my son lives in that space with him. Mm. I never have a moment where I am concerned about my son. It's such a beautiful thing because when you are co-parenting, 
the mother, the you know, these roles that sometimes that the mother plays where she wants to protect the son. And she, that's what my mother did with my eldest brother. She needed to protect him from my father. So there, there has never been, he's seven years old now, there's never been a moment for me where that instinct was activated, that I need to protect him from his father. The relationship that the two of them have, you know, we we spoke to his teacher the other day, and his teacher says he's he's so he's so um, responsive, he's so kind, he's so he listens and he takes the instructions in, and and I listen to the way that that my son, my my husband grooms my son. Go and ask mommy if she needs any help. Take out the bin, put it in this bin, and then replace the bag in the bin. And there's zero fight for my son. He doesn't go into, who are you? There's, 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 there's respect, there's mutual respect. You know, so this morning, I was a bit late here this morning because I had to drop my son off at school. But the dilemma was what he was going to wear. And then he must he must sort out what he's going to wear and he must make up his bed and he must, and he, you know, and he's the type of child who wants his room to look a particular way. And this morning, I don't want that pants. I, I want this dinosaurs, but I want it on this pants. Oh. So it was a, a UN conversation this morning around <laughs> how do we get the dinosaurs off his tracksuit pants and put it on his jeans? And then his bed still had to be made up and then and so and so and so. And so he was overwhelmed. And what my husband did was he walked into the room. So instead of raining down on him because mommy needs to be somewhere at a particular time, he says, okay, I'll make up your bed so long while you decide what you're going to wear. That's the kind of environment that my son is growing up in. And... He's set up to succeed with that. Mm. That's grace. Mm. Mm. Where you can still see the the child in a young man Mm. or see that someone is looking to you Mm. for the answers and that your answers and your behavior is molding the success of this little life, you know, and the and the tantrum or the confusion or the the challenge um, is nothing more than that. Is trying to understand. Um, I'm so happy mm. that you have that. Mm. You're very blessed. Mm. I and, am. I am. Yeah. And, and the in on in the drive, on the drive to the school. He asked me at seven, he says, Mommy, what is freedom? Hey. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Shit. It's like <laughs> 10 past seven. Did you take a deep breath? It's like, what is freedom? <laughs> and now, he, you know, he can read now. So now he reads all of these things. And he says to me, uh, Mommy, what is freedom? Oh. And I looked at him and I said, that's a really good question. He says, I ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, what is freedom? And I said, freedom is when you're not scared. And uh, he thought about that. He says, oh, then I'm free. (laughs) I said, yes, you are. 
Mm. Yes, you are. And and for me, what I'm getting out of this conversation is that, you know, as the girl that challenges, as the girl that wants to understand, as the girl that has an authority figure that has rank but doesn't have impact, that there's hope for us, mm. that we can still make different decisions about our life partners, that we can make different decisions about when you're sitting in your career and you can have the kind of impact that you know you can have, that those, they they don't, they don't get flushed because that's where you come from. In actual fact, those are the very things that when you walk that, that rites of passage, when you do that initiation, those are the skills that, that get honed and that there's a comma in the sentence. It's not a full stop, you know. So sometimes I think when the, <clears throat> when the fight continues and you think there's a full stop, this is where my life is going to end. That's not true. There's a comma in the sentence. Um, and it brings me through us, you know. It brings me a sense of it's okay. Mm. It's okay. It's okay to do you and it's okay for my dad to do him. And that is a comma. There's a comma. Mm. And so those listening at home, uh, thanks to Jonah mm. and Chantal's drive to studio this morning, mm. freedom is when you are not scared. Alchemy in minutes. 